Chapter Three of the Chronicles of Avonlea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Chronicles of Avonlea, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Three, Each in His Own Tongue, Part Two. Mr. Leonard drew a long breath of relief. He knew that promise would be kept. So did old Abel. The latter crossed the floor and sullenly took the violin from Felix's relaxed hand. Without a word or look he went into the little bedroom off the kitchen and shut the door with a slam of righteous indignation. But from its window he stealthily watched his visitors go away. Just as they entered on the maple path Mr. Leonard laid his hand on Felix's head and looked down at him. Instantly the boy flung his arm up over the old man's shoulder and smiled at him. In the look they exchanged there was boundless love and trust, ay, and good fellowship. Old Abel's scornful eyes again held the golden flash. "'How those two love each other,' he muttered enviously, "'and how they torture each other.' Mr. Leonard went to his study to pray when he got home. He knew that Felix had run for comforting to Janet Andrews, the little, thin, sweet-faced, rigid-lipped woman who kept house for them. Mr. Leonard knew that Janet would disapprove of his action as deeply as old Abel had done. She would say nothing. She would only look at him with reproachful eyes over the teacups at supper-time. But Mr. Leonard believed he had done what was best, and his conscience did not trouble him, though his heart did. Thirteen years before this his daughter Margaret had almost broken that heart by marrying a man of whom he could not approve. Martin Moore was a professional violinist. He was a popular performer, though not in any sense a great one. He met the slim, golden-haired daughter of the manse at the house of a college friend she was visiting in Toronto, and fell straightway in love with her. Margaret had loved him with all her virginal heart in return, and married him despite her father's disapproval. It was not to Martin Moore's profession that Mr. Leonard objected, but to the man himself. He knew that the violinist's past had not been such as became a suitor for Margaret Leonard, and his insight into character warned him that Martin Moore could never make any woman lastingly happy. Margaret Leonard did not believe this. She married Martin Moore and lived one year in paradise. Perhaps that atoned for the three bitter years which followed, that and her child. At all events, she died as she had lived, loyal and uncomplaining. She died alone, for her husband was away on a concert tour, and her illness was so brief that her father had not time to reach her before the end. Her body was taken home to be buried beside her mother in the little Carmody churchyard. Mr. Leonard wished to take the child, but Martin Moore refused to give him up. Six years later Moore died, too, and at last Mr. Leonard had his heart's desire, the possession of Margaret's son. The grandfather awaited the child's coming with mingled feelings. His heart yearned for him, yet he dreaded to meet a second edition of Martin Moore. Suppose Margaret's son resembled his handsome vagabond of a father. Or worse still, suppose he were cursed with his father's lack of principle, his instability, his bohemian instincts. Thus Mr. Leonard tortured himself wretchedly before the coming of Felix. The child did not look like either father or mother. Instead, Mr. Leonard found himself looking into a face he had put away under the grasses thirty years before, the face of his girl-bride who had died at Margaret's birth. Here again were her lustrous gray-black eyes, her ivory outlines, her fine-traced arch of brow, and here, looking out of those eyes, 
seemed her very spirit again. From that moment the soul of the old man was knit to the soul of the child, and they loved each other with a love surpassing that of women. Felix's only inheritance from his father was his love of music. But the child had genius, where his father had possessed only talent. To Martin Moore's outward mastery of the violin was added the mystery and intensity of his mother's nature, with some more subtle quality still which had perhaps come to him from the grandmother he so strongly resembled. Moore had understood what a career was naturally before the child, and he had trained him in the technique of his art from the time the slight fingers could first grasp the bow. When nine-year-old Felix came to the Carmody manse, he had mastered as much of the science of the violin as nine out of ten musicians acquire in a lifetime, and he brought with him his father's violin. It was all Martin Moore had to leave his son, but it was an amati, the commercial value of which nobody in Carmody suspected. Mr. Leonard had taken possession of it, and Felix had never seen it since. He cried himself to sleep many a night for the loss of it. Mr. Leonard did not know this, and if Janet Andrews suspected it, she held her tongue, an art in which she excelled. She saw no harm in a fiddle herself, and thought Mr. Leonard absurdly strict in the matter, though it would not have been well for the luckless outsider who might have ventured to say as much to her. She had connived at Felix's visits to old Abel Blair, squaring the matter with her Presbyterian conscience by some peculiar process known only to herself. When Janet heard of the promise which Mr. Leonard had exacted from Felix, she seethed with indignation, and though she knew her place better than to say anything to Mr. Leonard about it, she made her disapproval so plainly manifest in her bearing that the stern, gentle old man found the atmosphere of his hitherto peaceful man's unpleasantly chill and hostile for a time. It was the wish of his heart that Felix should be a minister, as he would have wished his own son to be had one been born to him. Mr. Leonard thought rightly that the highest work to which any man could be called was a life of service to his fellows, but he made the mistake of supposing the field of service much narrower than it is, failing to see that a man may minister to the needs of humanity in many different but equally effective ways. Janet hoped that Mr. Leonard might not exact the fulfillment of Felix's promise, but Felix himself, with the instinctive understanding of perfect love, knew that it was vain to hope for any change of viewpoint in his grandfather. He addressed himself to the keeping of his promise in letter and in spirit. He never went again to old Abel's. He did not even play on the organ, though this was not forbidden, because any music wakened in him a passion of longing and ecstasy which demanded expression with an intensity not to be borne. He flung himself grimly into his studies and conned Latin and Greek verbs with a persistency which soon placed him at the head of all competitors. Only once in the long winter did he come near to breaking his promise. One evening, when March was melting into April, and the pulses of spring were stirring under the lingering snow, he was walking home from school alone. As he descended into the little hollow below the manse, a lively lilt of music drifted up to meet him. It was only the product of a mouth-organ, manipulated by a little black-eyed French-Canadian hired boy sitting on the fence by the brook but there was music in the ragged urchin, and it came out through his simple toy. It tingled over Felix from head to foot, and, when Leon held out the mouth-organ with a fraternal grin of invitation, he snatched at it as a famished creature might snatch at food. Then, with it halfway to his lips, he paused. True, it was only the violin he had promised never to touch, but he felt that if he gave way ever so little to the desire that was in him, it would sweep everything before it. 
If he played on Leon Boit's mouth-organ, there in that misty spring-dale, he would go to old Abel's that evening. He knew he would go. To Leon's amazement, Felix threw the mouth-organ back at him and ran up the hill as if he were pursued. There was something in his boyish face that frightened Leon, and it frightened Janet Andrews as Felix rushed past her in the hall of the manse. "'Child, what's the matter with you?' she cried. "'Are you sick? Have you been scared?' "'No, no, leave me alone, Janet,' said Felix chokingly, dashing up the stairs to his own room. He was quite composed when he came down to tea an hour later, though he was unusually pale and had purple shadows under his large eyes. Mr. Leonard scrutinized him somewhat anxiously. It suddenly occurred to the old minister that Felix was looking more delicate than his wont this spring. Well, he had studied hard all winter, and he was certainly growing very fast. When vacation came, he must be sent away for a visit. "'They tell me Naomi Clark is real sick,' said Janet. "'She has been ailing all winter, and now she's fast to her bed. "'Mrs. Murphy says she believes the woman is dying, but nobody dares tell her so. "'She won't give in she's sick, nor take medicine. "'And there's nobody to wait on her except that simple creature, Maggie Peterson.' "'I wonder if I ought to go and see her,' said Mr. Leonard uneasily. "'What use would it be to bother yourself? "'You know she wouldn't see you. "'She'd shut the door in your face like she did before. "'She's an awful wicked woman, "'but it's kind of terrible to think of her lying there sick "'with no responsible person to tend to her. "'Naomi Clark is a bad woman, "'and she lived a life of shame, "'but I like her for all that,' remarked Felix, "'in the grave, meditative tone "'in which he occasionally said rather startling things.' Mr. Leonard looked somewhat reproachfully at Janet Andrews, as if to ask her why Felix should have attained this dubious knowledge of good and evil under her care, and Janet shot a dour look back, which, being interpreted, meant that if Felix went to the district school, she could not and would not be held responsible if he learned more there than arithmetic and Latin. "'What do you know of Naomi Clark to like or dislike?' she asked curiously. "'Did you ever see her?' "'Oh, yes,' Felix replied, addressing himself to his cherry preserve with considerable gusto. "'I was down at Spruce Cove one night last summer when a big thunderstorm came up. I went to Naomi's house for shelter. The door was open, so I walked right in, because nobody answered my knock. Naomi Clark was at the window, watching the cloud coming up over the sea. She just looked at me once, but didn't say anything, and then went on watching the cloud.' I didn't like to sit down, because she hadn't asked me to, so I went to the window by her and watched it, too. It was a dreadful sight. The cloud was so black, and the water so green, and there was such a strange light between the cloud and the water. Yet there was something splendid in it, too. Part of the time I watched the storm, and the other part I watched Naomi's face. It was dreadful to see, like the storm, and yet I liked to see it. After the thunder was over, it rained a while longer, and Naomi sat down and talked to me. She asked me who I was, and when I told her, she asked me to play something for her on her violin. Felix shot a deprecating glance at Mr. Leonard. Because, she said, she'd heard I was a great hand at it. She wanted something lively, and I tried just as hard as I could to play something like that. But I couldn't. I played something that was terrible. It just played itself. It seemed as if something was lost that could never be found again. And before I got through, Naomi came at me and tore the violin from me and swore, and she said, You big-eyed brat, how did you know that? And then she took me by the arm, and she hurt me, too, I can tell you, and she put me right out in the rain and slammed the door. 
"'The rude, unmannerly creature,' said Janet, indignantly. "'Oh, no, she was quite in the right,' said Felix composedly. "'It served me right for what I played. You see, she didn't know I couldn't help playing it. I suppose she thought I did it on purpose. What on earth did you play, child?' "'I don't know,' Felix shivered. "'It was awful. It was dreadful. It was fit to break your heart. But it had to be played, if I played anything at all.' "'I don't understand what you mean. I declare I don't,' said Janet, in bewilderment. "'I think we'll change the subject of conversation,' said Mr. Leonard. It was a month later when the simple creature Maggie appeared at the manse door one evening and asked for the preacher. "'Naomi wants to see you,' she mumbled. "'Naomi sent Maggie to tell you to come at once.' "'I shall go, certainly,' said Mr. Leonard gently. "'Is she very ill?' "'Her's dying.' said Maggie, with a broad grin, and her's awful scared of hell. Her just knew ter day she was dying. Maggie told her her wouldn't believe the harbor women, but her believed Maggie. Her yelled awful. Maggie chuckled to herself over the gruesome remembrance. Mr. Leonard, his heart filled with pity, called Janet and told her to give the poor creature some refreshment. But Maggie shook her head. No, no, preacher, Maggie must get right back to Naomi. Maggie'll tell her the preacher's coming to save her from hell. She uttered an eerie cry and ran at full speed shoreward through the spruce woods. The Lord save us, said Janet in an awed tone. I knew the poor girl was simple, but I didn't know she was like that. And are you going, sir? Yes, of course. I pray God I may be able to help the poor soul, said Mr. Leonard sincerely. He was a man who never shirked what he believed to be his duty. But duty had sometimes presented itself to him in pleasanter guise than this summons to Naomi Clark's deathbed. The woman had been the plague spot of Lower Carmody and Carmody Harbor for a generation. In the earlier days of his ministry to the congregation he had tried to reclaim her, and Naomi had mocked and flouted him to his face. Then for the sake of those to whom she was a snare or a heartbreak he had endeavored to set the law in motion against her and Naomi had laughed the law to scorn. Finally he had been compelled to let her alone. Yet Naomi had not always been an outcast. Her girlhood had been innocent, but she was the possessor of a dangerous beauty, and her mother was dead. Her father was a man notorious for his harshness and violence of temper. When Naomi made the fatal mistake of trusting to a false love that betrayed and deserted, he drove her from his door with taunts and curses. Naomi took up her quarters in a little deserted house at Spruce Cove. Had her child lived, it might have saved her. But it died at birth, and with its little life went her last chance of worldly redemption. From that time forth, her feet were set in the way that takes hold on hell. For the past five years, however, Naomi had lived a tolerably respectable life. When Janet Peterson had died, her idiot daughter Maggie had been left with no kin in the world nobody knew what was to be done with her for nobody wanted to be bothered with her naomi clark went to the girl and offered her a home people said she was no fit person to have charge of maggie but everybody shirked the unpleasant task of interfering in the manner except mr leonard who went to expostulate with naomi and as janet said for his pains got her door shut in his face but from the day when maggie peterson went to live with her naomi ceased to be the harbor magdalene End of chapter 3, part 2